they are as comfortable speaking Spanish as they are English. And they've been involved in bringing the gospel to South America and to, and to let's just say, Spanish, to the Spanish-speaking world for almost 50 years, since 1975. They have two sons and nine grandchildren. How many of your nine are adopted? All of them. How about that? It's great. So before, brother, before you come, I want to do two things. I want to give a basis why we have Mr. Seacrest coming, speaking, presenting for us tonight. At the end of the first missionary journey in Acts 14, we read this in verse 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia or Adalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Brother, come and tell us that all that God has done with you. I would like to be able to tell you all that the Lord has done for us, but we um, would be here quite a while. This is a, a tremendous blessing for me to be able to share with you. I would like to uh, bring you up to date because it's very difficult to listen to someone if you don't know them. It's difficult for me to address a church if I haven't known the church, and I have had contact with the church through the years, with Mark especially uh, recently, um, but it's important to know each other, and if we're going to communicate. I, I would begin by saying that my wife and I have been uh, in Peru since 1975, but there have been many different chapters along the way. For 14 years, I served as the executive director of volunteers and medical missions in Seneca, South Carolina. We sent medical teams around the world. And it came to the point where I thought I would rather be receiving those teams than sending those teams. And I sent teams down to Peru. I worked as an interpreter for those. But when I began to receive Social Security... I thought this might be the time for a change. So for the last seven years, our largest contributor to our ministry was the U.S. government, for which I don't have to write them a thank you letter, acknowledge it. They don't require any reports at all. That's wonderful. So that's where we are at the present time, serving under um, South America mission, my wife and I. Now... The next slide, and we'll try and run through these rather quickly. Uh, I have about 20 slides I'd like to present to you. But as I mentioned, we started in 1975. Our first uh, son was born in Lima, Peru. He's pictured uh, on the upper slide. And then my, bon my wife and I, we began to serve again in Peru in, um, just about seven years ago in 2015, October, we arrived. The next slide gives you an overview of the country of Peru, 
directly south of us, way south. We served in Lima, a large city of about 12 million people, uh, a large metropolis. Lima is like an island in the country of Peru. It is metropolitan, it is cosmopolitan, urban ministry. Outside of Lima, you're stepping back another 50 to 100 years and becomes very provincial. The next slide gives you a description of our ministry. And we had a focus upon encouraging ministries around us, other pastors, working in local churches, and then also serving receiving medical mission teams. Remember, I was an executive director of volunteers and medical missions, and so now we begin to receive those same teams in Lima and working on the coast, mountains, and jungle regions. So that is a synopsis of the ministry that we have had for the past seven years. The next slide uh, is an overview of some of these um, medical uh, teams that we have had. Uh, We would receive them, and in the process, it occurred to us that it would be important at some point to establish a Peruvian entity that would be the mirror image of what we had in Seneca. So we established a group called BASE, and the letters stand for Voluntarios en Ayuda Social y Evangelismo. All right, uh, volunteers in social help and evangelism, made up of Peruvians. Uh, I was the founder. I have now removed myself from the board. It's conducted by uh, Peruvian nationals. My job at this point is maintain contact with them, give them direction, and help to raise funds in the states to sustain the ministry. The next slide is an overview of some of the things that are accomplished on these uh, medical campaigns that we have. There is the opportunity to demonstrate visually the love of Christ, not just to talk about it, but to give out free medical help, eyeglasses, uh, water purification systems, do minor surgeries. Now, the fellow down at the, uh, in the bottom of the picture there with the Band-Aid on his lip, he had a, a tumor that was growing He wanted it removed. The lead doctor, Dr. Dave Seeley from Greenwood, South Carolina, had a close friendship with a plastic surgeon in the uh, self-regional hospital, made a phone call. This was from a a Quechua community in the mountains of Peru called Primor Pampa. They made contact. He described the situation. They went in and were able to remove the tumor, took a patch out of his neck, When you get older, you have excess skin here. So you take that out, and they placed it over the hole that was created. The following year, he came back to show us. It was wonderful. The following year, he came back. And so there has been continued. For the last 20 years, we've been going to this general, same general area and have established many different relationships. The next slide is... uh, represents the first church that we had contact with. This church in Gracia Eterna was established by Paul Washer some 30 years ago in Lima. It had undergone a church split. Uh, They were suffering. When we arrived, their average attendance was about 30 people. 
And they welcomed us with open arms. And it's nice to feel needed and wanted. And we were able to minister there in that group for a little over three years. I became one of the elders in the church. And we, when we left that group, the next slide shows you some of the, uh, the relationships that were established. When we left that church, they were starting to have two uh, services, averaging 150 in each service. Uh, the Lord blessed in an unusual way. Now, many people were attracted to that church because of Paul Washer. And they would come to the church and say, is this a church of Paul Washer? And we'd have to say, no, not really, but we still reflect his teaching and doctrine. Now, the next slide uh, displays the close relationship that the, um, the church in Barranco maintains with the church that we went on to minister in and form after we left the church in Barranco. Right before we left, we were able to baptize 11 candidates using the baptistry at the Iglesia uh, Biblica Gracia Eterna in Barranco. They let us use their facility, and we were. this is a new church plant that I was working with. And so it was just moving forward. We were really encouraged. The next slide shows that they were celebrating their second anniversary. And they meet on the 15th store of a 16-floor high-rise in downtown Lima in an area called Miraflores. It is a touristy center. It is middle, upper-class uh, section of Lima, probably the most underchurched area in all of Lima. Uh, very modern, but in very much uh, needy, a very needy area. And so we, we have never really published what we're doing. It's just word of mouth. The facility will comfortably uh, accommodate about 70 people. They've recently been averaging 120, and they're looking for a new place to meet. So the next slide. This is a group picture. About once a month, we would meet together with the leadership in our home. We would have lunch, meet together, fellowship, and then the elders would meet afterward for prayer, communion, and sharing. This is something that uh, we really enjoyed doing. And the church itself, in the next slide, shows the, uh, some of the different outreaches that we had. There was an area on the other side of Lima that we adopted. Some of the people were from uh, Villa Maria del Triunfo. And there was an area called Luces de Villa Maria. Okay? Up on the hill, we had a children's ministry. A civic center gave us the facility. And the next slide shows the, uh, the trek up there. A lot of steps. I've never really counted how many steps. But Pastor Marty Hoffman came down to visit us. And I'll share this, if you just promise not to share this with Marty. He almost made it to the top. He was lacking about 10 or 15 steps. He paused, and he told me later he didn't remember anything else. We had to go down and help him up. And we finally got some electrolytes into him once he got into the facility. This is a very steep Incline, but it's these people and the kids. It's unbelievable. They run up and down these steps like it's not. They were like mountain goats. It's amazing. But we're looking at this area as a possible church plant out of this new church that has been established in Miraflores. 
So we already have a potential pastor, a place to meet, and it's moving forward. The next slide shows, uh, this is a picture of the, the children's ministry up there on the top of the hill. The next slide. I don't know. Let's go on to the next. Yeah, there is. Another ministry we had focused on the children's hospital in downtown Lima. One of the elders had a daughter who was sluggish, very thirsty, no energy. And my wife, being a type 1 diabetic, thought, you know, that sounds like she might have a very high glucose level and she needs to be tested. They took her to a medical outpost near their house and they said, well, it's nothing. She just needs to eat something, go to bed. We told her that didn't sound good. And, and she continued to get worse. They eventually took her to a real hospital. They took her glucose reading at over 500. Okay, normal 80 to 100. They, she could have easily lapsed into a coma. This was during the pandemic. They admitted her to the hospital where she stayed for about a week. Now, this was during the pandemic. <clears throat> Parents could not go into the hospital. They had to stay on the street. And interestingly, and this is typical in Latin America, if you want a procedure done, such a blood glucose test, uh, you have to pay for it, and then they'll do it. So that's why the parents had to stay close. And they had to stay there overnight. And so all these pump tents were set up outside of the hospital. And eventually she got out. But we saw this as a ministry. And so twice a month we would go back, pass out food to the people living in the pump tents, share the gospel with them, encourage them, and it became a real ministry. We were able to preach with them, share the gospel, and you see it in the next slide. This uh, is another outreach of our church. Um, it's called the, we call it the grupos de comunión, communion groups. It might be a community group. It might be a small group. We, these met in our home. And it was a highlight of the week. Uh, they would get, begin to gather at our home around 7.30. Uh, around 8 o'clock, we would begin the study and would proceed until 9, 9.15. And then we'd have some refreshments on the table. And generally, now you have to understand, my bedtime is around 9.30, okay? But they would stay till close to midnight. Now, I really appreciated the pandemic because we had a curfew. And it was at 10 o'clock, and they had to go... But this more was accomplished, I believe, after the study. As, and this small group grew to about 30 people. They would break into other small groups and talk and discuss. Uh, a lot of relationships were formed. It was very special at that time. In fact, when we left, I think three couples from that group had entered into courtship relationships. But that's another story. The next slide. That is a video clip which it probably won't show up of our room. I don't know if that would work. Okay, that's our, that's our living room. It has an audio, but you probably can't hear it. But it, we had the outlines we passed out, very informal, opportunity to ask questions, very much, very similar to what you would probably do here. But this was our, our living room. The Lord granted to us a large living area. We could accommodate easily 30 people. The last meeting we had, we had over 40 present. So this was a, an unusual blessing with the, uh, the study, the interaction, also concluding with the time of prayer. 
Then the next slide. Um, this interesting video clip, but it's, it shows why we need these small groups. We had about six through the city because of the traffic. On a Sunday morning, you could reach our church in a half hour. During the week, it would take almost two hours. The traffic is terrible in Lima. All right, the next slide. This would be um, uh, the church on the, the upper portion as it was when we left, and then the leadership at the bottom as they met with our, in our home. Uh, we're just very thankful for them. Uh, the next slide uh, is, is a clip of the, uh, one of our services. The, it's interesting, in the building where we were renting, there was a, a hall on one side and one on the other. So the pastor would be in the middle and preach to this group and the, the other group, and you had to keep going back and forth. But it worked, and they're looking for a new place to meet at this time. But that gives you an overview of, of what was, was going on there, for which we are very thankful. So I praise the Lord, and I, I, I hope I haven't taken up too much time with this because I do want to share God's Word with you. And we're going to focus on Genesis chapter 18. But before I jump into this, let's, uh, let's approach the throne of grace again and ask God's blessing upon this time. Our merciful Father, we pray that as we get to know each other better, we would also be drawn into closer communion with you. May we walk with you, commune with you, and have great confidence to leave our petitions before the throne of grace. Bless us this evening. Help us to apply your word to our hearts. Spirit of the living God, may your will be accomplished as we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the first 21 verses in Genesis 18 really focuses upon Sarah and her reaction to the news that in her advanced state, in advanced years, that she would actually bear a child, which would establish a godly line through which the Redeemer would come. There would be a people chosen, and the Redeemer would come through that line. And then the final portion of this chapter has a a different focus as the emphasis shifts to Abraham and an intercessory prayer that he has for Sodom. So in Genesis chapter 18, I'll be reading verses 22 through 33 using the English Standard Version. Genesis 18, 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, 
I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of twenty I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this one, suppose ten are found there, he answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, this, this passage is unique in a number of ways because it gives us a, a rare glimpse of the pre-incarnate Son of God. Also, it's unique because it's, it's viewed as a prayer. We see something here also of the, of the nature of God, and, and it displays the certainty of judgment. It gives a, a visual display of the necessary work of the Redeemer and His provision. And I'd like to draw these things out. But back in verse 16, that we, we see that the men rose after eating. After sharing the prophetic word about that child that was to come, and it's interesting here, back in verse 16, Abraham then went with them for a time, and that was customary according to the culture and the traditions of the time. Traditional, it was very traditional for a host to escort his guests a little way. And that came to my mind. It's also very true in Latin America. If you're familiar with the Latin culture at all, guests are generally accompanied out of the house, out to the car. It's a common courtesy. You just don't say goodbye at the door. You walk with them. And it was at this point that the Lord said, and I'm quoting from verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, the one who spoke was none other than the Lord, a pre-incarnate manifestation of God. Now, in theology, this is called a theophany or a Christophany. And we don't have a whole lot of detail here, but it is with God that Abraham begins to intercede for Sodom. He's interceding for pagans. Abraham was informed about the coming judgment, and he began to intercede for the city. This is a prayer. James Montgomery Boyce remarked that this is a remarkable example of a prayer of intercession. 
It's the first in all the Bible. It is remarkable on God's part that he would allow Abraham to negotiate with him. But it's also remarkable on Abraham's part because it shows the degree of confidence that Abraham had and how he had progressed in his relationship and intimacy with his creator God. Jonathan Edwards made the the statement that when we read of God appearing after the fall, fall in some visible form, we are ordinarily, if not universally, to understand it of the second person of the Trinity. Edwards went on to say that the Father is always mediated by the Son, Christ is not merely pattern and promised in the Old Testament. He's also present. Now, what I'd like to do in the, in the time that we have, and I'm, I'm trying to move along quickly. This has been a full day for you and for me, but this is important. I'd like to just focus here on the, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. The exceeding sinfulness of sin, and then the certainty a divine judgment. And then we're going to conclude and probably spend most of our time on the wonder of divine grace. So let's begin with the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And it's a biblical expression. In the short letter of Jude, the earthly brother of Christ, in that letter, it's described the nature of sin. is described in graphic terms. Jude is speaking of the ungodly and their ungodly deeds and their ungodly speeches. And it was all given by ungodly sinners, exceedingly sinful. And then he went on to describe them as filthy dreamers, defiling the flesh, flesh, despising dominion, speaking evil of dignitaries. He said they were murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lusts. The ESV describes them as loud mouth boasters showing favoritism just to gain advantage. And then Jude goes on to mention Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities as another example of the exceeding sinfulness of sin as they indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires and served as an example for us by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. That's the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It can also be described as self-exaltation, autonomy. Uh, now, I'm sure you might remember, at least those of you who are approaching my age, uh, the popular song, Frank Sinatra, back in the 60s, I'll do it my way. Now, I I would acknowledge, as I go through this, I would acknowledge that many have been encouraged by that particular tune. And many people have used that tune, I'll do it my way, to persevere in difficult circumstances. All right? So I'm not totally discounting the tune, and if you want to sing it afterwards, that's no problem. I have no problem with that, all right? That's fine. 
However, there is a theme that runs through that popular song that undermines a needed dependence upon God. And it's void of any sense of humility and displays nothing but a sense of pride and hope and self. Okay, just, just one stanza. And now the end is near. And so I face that final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more, I did it. I did it my way. And this is a theme that's so prevalent in our culture today. It's my way. It was dominant in Sodom. And those in Sodom would have insisted that they had their rights, it was their time, their way, their choice, and their bodies. And see, all of this, it's part of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It is a demonstration of self-centeredness. The exceeding sinfulness of, sinfulness of sin. It also carries residual effects. The, the, the effect of sin is not just a, a splash in a pool or, or a ripple of one. It's more like a stone which is thrown into a placid pool producing ripples across the pond. And what I'm saying is that a display of unbelief, self-centeredness, pride, lust, Greed cannot just be limited to the perpetrator. Sin is exceedingly sinful. It is contagious and will touch everyone around you. Jeremiah 12, uh, 32, verse 18. Addressing his Lord, Jeremiah the prophet said, You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Do you hear what he's saying? That's, it's the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It's the contamination. It's not just you and your little private sin or your twisted moral value. It's you. You and your doubts will affect all of those around you, your children, your friends, your community. When Moses received the, the second commandment. He was told that, and this is Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, that you shall not make for yourselves any carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I'm a jealous God. But it doesn't end there. The command did not stop there. It continues saying that the Lord your God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my command. Now this means that a disregard for the second commandment will have a ripple effect and passed down as a generational sin infecting the children's children. This is one of the most horrible 
aspects of sin, which is that it often infects and harms other people, especially those who are closest to the person committing the sin. Now, I'd add that this cycle of sin and suffering can be broken through repentance. There is pardon. There is redemption. There is healing in Christ. But my brother, we need to view the exceeding sinfulness of sin as a lion that would devour us. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. Now, we also have here the certainty of divine judgment. The Lord said that the cry of the wickedness of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had reached him. The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, it was so great. Their sin was so grievous. God said, I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. What that means is that God not only knows and hears but that he comes down and he's involved and he feels and God is not ignorant of wickedness. He is not indifferent to the cry of the oppressed. Cain killed Abel. And God said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You can't hide. And now the destruction of Sodom is a warning of the certainty of God's ultimate judgment on all sin. God wanted Abraham to understand this truth and to pass it on to his children, his children's children. Peter wrote saying that he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly. R.G. Lee, the Southern Baptist minister, very well known, pastored the Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, served as a president of the Southern Baptist Convention, R.G. Lee, many years. He is best known for that sermon entitled, Payday Someday. It said that he preached that sermon. Now, this was before sermon audio and videos and tape, all this. But he preached that sermon over 1,200 times in pulpits across the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, Payday Someday, it starts off with an introduction to the, the major characters. Naboth, the devout Israelite. Then there was Ahab. He described Ahab... This is, this is good. As the vile human toad who squatted upon the throne of his nation, the worst of Israel's kings. Okay? And then there was the wicked Queen Jezebel who was described as the evil genius of her dynasty. And the main thrust of the sermon reminds us that no sinner... No sinner can escape the wrath of God. Payday will come for every sinner. It will come. It is the certainty of divine judgment. And the only way to escape the coming payday is to embrace Jesus. Quoting R.G. Lee, Did God mean what he said, or was he playing a prank on royalty? Did payday come? Payday someday? 
Payday Someday is written in the constitution of God's universe. The retributive providence of God is a reality as certainly as the laws of gravitation are a reality. And then to Ahab and Jezebel. Payday came as certainly as night follows day because sin carries in itself the seed of its own fatal penalty. And the certainty of divine judgment fell upon the people of Sodom. The outcry of their wickedness was made worse by the many displays of mercy that they had previously received. They had received the the witness. They had witnessed the power and the grace of God more than any of the other cities of Canaan. They had been defeated by the four kings of the east. It was God through his servant Abraham who rescued them, delivered them from slavery, And undoubtedly, they had heard of the life and the testimony of Melchizedek, and they had witnessed the example of Melchizedek, his relationship with Abraham. And then later, Lot Lot was a witness in Sodom to, to some degree, though the witness might have been weakened by his indecisive life. However, these testimonies were utterly ineffective where Sodom and Gomorrah were concerned because they were completely indifferent to the reality that sin demands judgment. I can get away with it. Now, at the same time, we have the prayerful intercession of Abraham. And this highlights the wonder of sovereign grace. And this is my favorite part of this whole thing. As we begin this section, I would mention that Abraham began with a rhetorical question. It's found in verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That's rhetorical. In other words, it's a question asked in order to create a dramatic effect or to make a point rather than to get an answer. He wants you to think about it. He is saying that it is impossible for him, the sovereign God of all the universe, to do anything that is unjust. Abraham is saying that God will act according to his nature, and that's the premise. God is just, he is pure, he is holy, righteous. Man by his fallen nature is unjust, impure, and sinful. Paul wrote in Romans 3 that there's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We're all accountable to God. He's the ultimate judge of all creation. He is worthy of all praise and adoration. And this is the premise. It's theologically sound. All authority rests with God. He alone is the supreme ruler. And he can raise up or he can put down. And this is what Abraham was expressing. And he did it so, so humbly. Abraham spoke well when he said, I'm nothing but dust and ashes. You're the sovereign Lord. But the wonder of grace is brought to the front as Abraham was allowed to interrogate God. 
And the question, questioning revolved around the possibility of a reprieve based upon the application of the righteous of one group to another. And God allowed himself to be interrogated. That, that's unexplainable. Wonder of grace. The, the righteous for the unrighteous. It's an amazing concept that, that Abraham was, was just beginning to understand as he spoke with the very son of righteousness. Now, this brings us to the, the principle of transferal or of transmission. And it really began with Adam, who was a legal represent, representative of the whole human race. And as a representative of the race, when he fell, he brought us all down so that we are born with a corrupt, fallen nature. This is a, a biblical doctrine, but one, one which is easier maybe for some cultures to understand than for others. For example, a communal culture can more easily understand how the sin of one individual might affect the whole. Now, it's a little more difficult for our present generation in the United States to understand as we stress individuality more than the communal concept. However, the biblical pattern is that of one representative for the whole. And this is what Paul explains is so well in his letter to the Romans and also to the Corinthians. Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin... Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. In other words, the concept that everyone is his own Adam is not correct. I am a born sinner because of the representation of Adam because of the representative position of Adam. However, and this is more important here, if this is true, we should also recognize the converse. Is there a negative exchange? There can also be a transfer of blessings or benefit passed from one group to another. Now, this can easily be understood in a communal culture. But we see examples of this in Scripture. For example, Laban's flocks were multiplied for Jacob's sake. Potiphar prospered because of Joseph who worked for him. God saved all who were traveling to Rome by ship with Paul because of Paul. There's a transfer. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that unbelieving husbands were sanctified by their believing wives. 1 Corinthians 7.14 For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. It's not that they were converted but that the influence of the believing spouse put them, their children, in a better position to hear and understand the gospel. So Abraham, in prayer, 
acted upon the assumption that mercy might be extended to Sodom based upon the presence of others who were righteous or right with God. In other words, that they would benefit from the goodness or right living of others. Again, this transfer of benefit from one group to another was understood, especially in a communal culture. Now, there are some characteristics of this prayer that should be found in our prayers too. For example, the the humility of it. And that's combined with a certain amount of boldness, persuasive perseverance. And, And this is how Abraham prayed. But it was not because those of Sodom somehow merited mercy. He he was praying for them, but they were corrupt, sensual, self-indulgent, self-reliant, and indifferent to the authority of the Creator God. They had no relationship with Abraham, nor with God, but Abraham prayed and was based upon the concept that the Lord of the universe would do right. Abraham does not plead that the wicked may be spared for their own sake or because it would be too severe to destroy them, but rather on the basis of a transferable righteousness that would preserve them. It was all of grace. And so Abraham prayed, and he said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked all like. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? It, it was only righteousness and only the application of righteousness that could be made as a plea before God. It was not downplaying the law or by making excuses for Sodom, but by pleading for the application of a righteousness that was not their own. Now, this plea was being made to the one who, according to Hebrews, was made perfect and who became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the the negotiation began with 50, but Abraham knew that it would be impossible, so he reduced it by five. And what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? Now again, remember, Who was speaking to Abraham? It is the pre-incarnate Christ, son of all righteousness, who said, if I find 45 there, I will not destroy it. And once again, Abraham spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? And the conversation continued. And we can almost sense Abraham being animated. Okay, I'm on a roll. 30, 20, and now down to 10. And then Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. 
What if only ten can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. But it is here that the prayer ended. Abraham could no, go no further. The Lord walked away. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left. Abraham returned home. The prayer concluded. Abraham also went home. There was nothing more to be said because Abraham knew that ten could not be found. However, stay with me here. If Abraham had continued, the next question would have been to ask that if, if one righteous person could be found, could not the city be spared? But Abraham never asked the question about one because he knew that there were none righteous there, including Lot. No one would have been able to stand as a righteous representative sufficient to extend hope to the unrighteous. And so he was silent. The prayer ended. The city was destroyed. However, what Abraham could not see at the time was that he had touched upon the essence of the gospel in his prayer and he had exposed for us the wonder of grace. Through him, all the nations would be blessed because through him, a perfect redeemer, a righteous substitute for sinners would come into the world. And this was given to those who would follow in anticipation of God's great provision. It's the wonder of grace. You know, something of this is also seen in Leviticus chapter 16 where you have the two goats. The one goat was slain, a type of Christ who was dying for our sins. The other goat, known as the scapegoat, a type of Christ rising again for our justification. The, the atonement is said to be completed by putting the sins of Israel upon the head of the goat, which was sent away into the wilderness, a land not inhabited. This transferal represented the free and full remission of their sins by sending away the goat. There was a transferal. He shall bear upon him all their iniquities. Now, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul explained that Jesus became our substitute, the righteous one for the unrighteous to bring a people to himself. It was based upon the work and the righteousness of Christ. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the perfect righteousness is one of one that is imputed. It is one that is given to a chosen people, but in return, the righteous one would become the sin bearer, the scapegoat. This is a glorious interchange. In Spanish, there is this hymn entitled Glorioso Intercambio. And I, I would share with you that I, as I was putting this together and I meditated upon this, 
my eyes watered up. I had to wipe away the tears. It's the wonder of grace. Glorioso in their... We don't have this hymn in English, but I would like to share with you just a portion of the chorus because it upholds what we have before us this afternoon. And it goes like this. Y cargó mi maldad sobre él. He took my wickedness upon himself. Su rectitud por la fe mía es. His righteousness by faith is mine. It, it reflects 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see it? Do you feel it? It's an unbelievable display of love, the righteous for the unrighteous. And then it concludes with these words, Alleluia, glorioso intercambio. Hallelujah. What a glorious interchange. Oh, cuan misterio, que por gracia soy salvo. Oh, what a great mystery that by grace I'm saved. And now Spurgeon wrote at one time, though the dead cannot, the wicked will not, and the careless do not, praise God, yet we will shout hallelujah forever and ever. Do you remember this, the description of what Jude gave of the condition of sinners? How He, he talked about their ungodly Actions, their exceeding sinfulness. However, it's interesting. It's interesting to, to observe how Jude concludes his short letter. It's amazing. He says that if we are in Christ, if we find refuge in Him, that He is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. On the one hand, exceeding sinful. On the other, what a transformation. Exceeding joy. It's an amazing contrast. Exceedingly sinful to exceedingly joyful. And if you understand this truth, if it's been applied to you personally, you'll shout, Hallelujah, glorioso intercambio. What a glorious exchange. And this is the message that we send to Peru. That's what they preached this morning in Peru. That's what you had today in this assembly. Rejoice in it. Embrace it. It's the wonder of grace. And if you've seen it, then you will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise his name. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for the work of Jesus. The righteous for the unrighteous. The spotless for the blemished. Oh Lord, we praise you, we adore you together. And we ask your blessing upon this assembly that your kingdom might advance and your name might be exalted and lifted up as we recognize again what the Savior has accomplished for us. Amen.